right, well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. When we uh, first announced that we were going to be preaching through Romans, uh, I think in general there was an excitement amongst us, and uh, we were somewhat anticipating and excited about all that we would come across in the book of Romans. And I know many of you, you have chapters that you're looking forward to us getting to in Romans, all right? You're, you're looking forward to what we're going to figure out in Romans uh, 7. You're excited to see how I'm going to handle preaching Romans 9. Um, you're maybe uh, uh, confused about how the whole Jew and Gentile thing fit into the story of God, and so you're excited about Romans 11 and what we're going to learn there. Uh, Maybe the events of the last couple of years has got you really wanting a a comprehensive understanding of Romans 13 and how what it really looks like to live and submit to our our civil governments and what all that is about. Uh, And and listen, I think that is great that there's an excitement. I'm glad that you are looking forward to some of these upcoming chapters. I'm excited as well. Uh, I myself uh, do not know how I'm going to preach some of those coming up, right? So it'll be a surprise for me as well. But listen, some of those upcoming chapters, while those might be what we want to hear, Romans chapter 2 is what we desperately need to hear. We need Romans 2. And honestly, I think we like the complexity, maybe some of the debates of the upcoming chapters, because those can distract us from actually coming to grips with what Romans 2 clearly teaches us. And so we we have to look in the mirror of Romans 2 before we can do anything else in Romans. Right? Do not, do not quickly move on to other things in Romans. Do not become busy with all these other issues until first, until first, his kindness has led you to repentance. This is of the utmost importance for us, for this local church specifically. And so I thought initially we'd maybe get through Romans 2 in a couple of weeks, and, and I'm thinking now maybe, maybe 3 or 4. I don't know. We're not going to be quick through Romans 2. We're not going to take everything as slow as this, but, but Romans 2 we're going to sit in because this is important for us. This is important for Franklin City Church, Romans chapter 2. I'll remind you, Romans chapter 2, where we're at in, the, in, the, in Paul's letter to the Romans, it's Romans 2 is right in the middle of God, through the Apostle Paul, essentially condemning all people. He's, he's proclaimed the glorious gospel in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He's proclaimed the power of the gospel, how it is through the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed to us. And it is a righteousness of God that we need to receive from God, and we receive it through faith. Right? It's glorious. It's powerful. But then he, he goes into, then after that, why the gospel is so necessary. 
why a received righteousness is so necessary. Why can't we just work for our own? Why can't we just get some self-righteousness? Why is it a righteousness that has to be received? And so he's in the middle of this, why it is so necessary that we have a received righteousness, why the gospel is so necessary. And he's explaining that it's all because humanity, because of sin, all of us rightly stand under the wrath and judgment of God. And last week we saw how people in Romans 1 who utterly reject the Creator and how He has designed and defined things, they spiral into more and more darkness, and God in His wrath gives them over to be enslaved to their passions and to worthless thinking. All right, we saw that at the end of Romans 1 last week. But listen, if you felt at all comfortable in our preaching of Romans 1, if you were able to sit back and nod your head at what you heard last week and it really didn't seem all that applicable to you, if that was you, hear me now, buckle up. Because now God's word is being directed right at you this morning. Paul now turns his attention to the religious and the moral people in the room. He turns his attention to those who grew up maybe in a, in a Jewish household who assumed that because they were born into the right family or because they were a part of the right group of people that somehow their hard hearts would escape the righteous judgment of God. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Even those born into the right family, doing a lot of the external right things, still stand rightly condemned in the sight of a holy God. And he's going to say at the end of Romans chapter 2, Romans 2 verses 28 and 29, which we'll have up on the screen, Romans 2, 28 and 29, he's going to say, For no one is a Jew who is one merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And we got to start to get, we have to start to get those two verses. And we'll keep coming back to them throughout chapter two. But right now, Paul is shifting gears to now those with a religious and a moral upbringing. But this is not just for those who grew up in a Jewish household, right? He, he's also got the moral and the ethical Gentiles in mind as well. Because not every Gentile, not every Greek in this society was completely living in open and obvious rebellion. In fact, one of Paul's contemporaries in Rome was a man named Seneca. And he was born around the same time as Jesus. And he taught a philosophy called Stoicism which had been around a few hundred years coming out of Athens. And the Bible tells us that Paul had to interact with the Stoics. He had to, to, to uh, do battle with them, so to speak, on doctrine and truth. We see in Acts 17, 18, that it says when Paul was in Athens, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
All right, so, so Paul had the Stoics and the moralists in mind here, right? He, he had to interact with them some, right? Seneca was in Rome at this time teaching and discipling his own group of disciples. And what the Stoics taught, the Stoics taught good morals and virtues, right? They, they didn't teach that humans were enslaved to sin like Paul taught, but that instead humans could use reason and logic to live virtuous lives, now, they believed in God, but they, they taught that God was this impersonal, unknowable force in the universe, and that he didn't really matter because you didn't really need his help. You didn't really need to love him. You could, in fact, find happiness and fulfillment living by reason and living an ethical life devoid of all passion and love for God. You see, Stoic, the Stoics left no room in their understanding for the supernatural work of God. They believed that in order to live a good life, you just needed to know the rules of life, you needed to know how creation was ordered, and then you needed to live in accordance with the rules. And you remember, let me remind you, what the sin of the, those in Romans 1 was ultimately. It was that they tried to take the creator out of creation. The Stoics and the moralists do the same thing, just in a much more respectable way. Many church-going people today would make great disciples of Seneca. Some of you might be his disciples and not even know it. You see, growing up in California, for the most part, people did not call themselves Christians simply out of tradition or because that was the family they grew up in. Uh, I'm not saying that didn't happen at all, but, but growing up in California, that just really wasn't a thing. Your family didn't, didn't just go to church because that's what generations had done, right? For the most part, it was very clear who loved Jesus and who didn't. Right? You had the, the Wiccan temple down the road. Right, You had people really into New Age stuff, Zen Buddhism, and all that stuff that was just clearly and obviously evil and not Christianity. And so therefore, when people said they were a Christian, it generally meant that they loved Jesus. That the Holy Spirit lived inside of them. That God had changed the affection and direction of their life. You see how naive I was. That's what I grew up thinking a Christian was, right? And it was a bit more obvious in a place like California that, that who was walking in darkness and who wasn't, right? I mean, California, it was. It was more like Romans 1. It was kind of just in your face a bit more. But then my world was shaken a bit when we moved to Indiana. And almost everyone I met said they were a Christian, and at first, you think you're in the promised land, right? Like, man, revival, all right, let's do this. But then you live a little longer, and you realize, oh, no. Yes, there are, there are many, many true believers here. Praise God for that. But there's also this thing which takes the form of Christianity, it sort of looks like it at first glance and from a distance and when you squint your eyes. But then you get up close and you see it for what it is. 
And it's Christianity with no need for Christ. It's well-meaning people trying to change the direction of people's lives without the power of God to change the affection of people's lives. And it's just as dark as California was, but it's an even more dangerous place to be because it's, a de- it's deceptively dark. Romans 2 and the people in Romans 2 are just as dark as Romans 1, but it's way more dangerous to be in Romans 2. If you find yourself in Romans 2, it's a way more dangerous place to be because it's deceptively dark. So last week we said Romans 1, we tried to put this into an equation, right? We said in Romans 1, in general, this was creation taking away its creator, and that equals darkness. Creation without its creator equals darkness. This week in Romans 2, we see Christianity without Christ is still darkness, but it's a deceptive darkness. And so let's, let's pray, and we'll start into Romans chapter 2. Father God, we ask that you would shine the light of your truth on us this morning. Lord, that you would open up our eyes to see you for who you really are. That you would draw us to yourself this morning. We ask for your help. We ask that your light would push back the darkness today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Right? Paul is coming after the moralist here, right? He's coming after the person who is really good at seeing the sins and the weaknesses and the shortcomings of others, but not themselves. Can, can you relate to that at all? Sadly, I can. I can relate to that, right? I mean, aren't there times in life, you man, you're going around city group, you're going around a group of believers sharing prayer requests for one another's hearts, and you could go around the room and say, yeah, you need prayer for this, you need prayer for this, you need prayer for this, and then you get to yourself and you draw a blank, like, ah, I think I'm good, you know, maybe volunteering too much, I don't know, it's straining me, memorizing too much of God's word, not caring for, I don't know, I'm, I'm good, right? But you got no problem seeing what everyone else needs prayer for, right? You see, it's easy to see the sin of others and not ourselves because we've got excuses for our sin, right? I mean, you know how to be kind to yourself and excuse yourself and cut yourself some slack. But you don't give that same kindness to the person sitting next to you, do you? You don't give that same sort of kindness to your, to, your, to your kids, do you? 
But yeah, you've got excuses for your sin, right? It's because of how you were raised. It's because you didn't sleep well last night. It's because God dealt you a bad hand. It's because your wife is not as affectionate with you as you'd want her to be. It's because your husband doesn't communicate with you as much as you want him to. It's because God didn't give you a spouse. It's because God did give you a spouse. I've heard them both. And everyone's got excuses for their sin, right? It's because of their bosses. It's because of the government. It's because of COVID. It's because of past wounds. And so I don't know what excuses you've made for your sin, but you've got some. And you've been very kind to yourself and cutting yourself some slack. But you've not offered that same kindness to the rest of us. And God's word comes to you today, specifically to you, and says, you have no excuse. You have no excuse, O oh man. Who, who's the man in the verse? The man is the, the religious man or woman. It's the moralist. It's the one so quick and so good at judging others, but can't see anything wrong in themselves. He says, you have no excuse. In passing judgment on others, you in fact Condemn yourself. Francis Schaeffer used to illustrate this verse really well. He would say, imagine you were born and someone put a recording device on your neck and you walked around with this recording device for your entire life and it recorded everything you said about others and how you thought they should live. And then imagine at the end of time, God the judge takes the tape off your neck and judges you based on your own standards. Now, a couple things you need to see and hear with that, all right? Number one, obviously, you in your sin, no matter how religious you are, you in your sin stand condemned in the presence of a holy God because not only have you fallen short of the standard of a holy God, you have not even met the standard you set for others. You haven't even lived up to the standard you set for your five-year-old. Who do you think you are that you're going to stand in front of a holy God and not be condemned as well? You can't even meet your own standard. Secondly, what we should take from these verses is that shouldn't this, at the very least, cause us to be very slow to pass judgment on one another? It's a little bit of a wake-up call. Like, not, not that there's not still a place for, for lovingly calling out the sins of others. Not that there still isn't play, a place for healthy church discipline to take place. But this, at the very least, should sober us up a little bit to not make quick and hasty judgments on people. To not be flippant in how we judge and scoff and insult one another. You see, these verses in Romans chapter 2, they really, they reveal the reality that the moralist is just as sinful and worthy of judgment as the pagan idolater. Their sin has just taken a different form. But sadly, 
the moralist is more likely to stay in their sin because instead of addressing their sin, they find ways to excuse their sin. And one of the ways they do this is by finding the faults of others. Right? They deceive themselves into believing that God grades on a curve and therefore they convince themselves that they are okay by pointing out all the sins of those around them. You see, a true believer, a true believer covers their sin and shame by running and clinging to Christ. The moralist tries to cover their sin and shame by clinging to other people's sin. You see the difference. There's no need of Christ for the moralist. They have other people's sin to cover their sin. No need of the cross for the moralist. No need for the resurrection. No need for the Holy Spirit. No need for the church. Well, I'll say there's a little of a need for a church. They're going to go to a church long enough to collect enough other people's sins to cover up their sins. So they'll go to church for a little bit and move on to the next one and find faults there and try to cover their own sin by clinging to other people's sin. And listen, you might not have been able to articulate that that's what's going on, but doesn't the spirit inside you know it when a judgmental moralist enters the room? The believers in the room, I think at times you can, you can feel it, can't you? You don't know exactly what's going on, but it feels like the oxygen has been sucked out of the room when this type of person enters. Man, grace is to the soul as oxygen is to the body. There are people who walk into a room and who come into a church and all the grace, all the air is just taken out of the room. The believers in the room find it difficult to breathe in their presence. They find it difficult to flourish and live in their presence. You feel as if one wrong word and you will be struck with this person's judgment. One misstep and they're going to pounce. One point of disagreement and you will feel their wrath and fury. Some of you have this effect when you enter a room. And I've seen people, when I worked in the hospital, I've seen people in the hospital, they're struggling to breathe. They're struggling for oxygen. They're using, using every muscle they have to try to expand their lungs to get what they need to survive. And when that sort of thing would happen, the respiratory therapist would typically come out and tell us, hey, they're really working in there. They're really working in there. I'm not sure how much longer they can keep it up. The moralist would respond with, good, they smoke for 50 years. That's why I don't smoke. That's why I don't let my kids smoke. Tell them to be better at breathing. Tell them to work harder. A kind and a gracious provider says, let's get them more oxygen. Let's help them breathe. Let's buy them some more time for the body to recover. And it's the, it's the kindness of the medical staff that could change the direction of a struggling patient. You see, I've been in churches and I've been in households where you can smell Romans 2. And you walk out thinking, man, they're really working hard in there. 
I'm not sure how much longer they can keep it up. The moralist says, work harder. Maybe that'll change things. And they suffocate themselves and those around them in the process. And listen, if you are doing this to your kids, they are going to run for oxygen as soon as they get the chance. You know Seneca, who I brought up before, Paul's contemporary, uh, he, he did have a famous student. Someone he discipled and trained from his childhood. Someone who he taught all the morals and all the ethics of the day to. He taught him all the rules. He taught him the difference between right and wrong. He put him on the right ethical road. Do you know who Seneca's student of moralism was? Does anyone know? It was Nero. And we don't have time to get into how messed up Nero was, but we will visit it all throughout Romans. I'm also not saying Seneca agreed with how Nero turned out. But what I am saying is that Seneca's produce Nero's all the time. Because Christianity without Christ is darkness. And trying to change the direction of someone's life without addressing the affection of their life, it doesn't work. Moralism sees no need for Christ, sees no need for a love of God. And if you are there, you are still walking in darkness. Is this you today? Is this you? Maybe some of you need to wake up today and see that people can't live up to your standard. Do you think you've really lived up to God's? Are you clinging to other people's sins? Do you really think that's going to be an effective covering for your own? Oh, that you would run to Christ today and let his work cover your sins. Now, maybe some of you, maybe, maybe many of you are believers, but you're a recovering moralist. You're a recovering moralist. Maybe this is some of you, and maybe you are still suffocating those around you with your attitude and your posture and your demeanor. Like, do you think that you just need to work harder and judge others more strictly and hold them to a higher standard, and that will produce spiritual growth? Hospitals need oxygen, and churches need grace. And people have to be able to live and breathe in here. And if this is you, this is why it's so serious. Look back at Romans 2. This is why it's so serious. What you are doing is you are despising the kindness and the goodness of God. Romans 2 verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? That word presume means to despise or to have a low opinion of. The moralist thinks so little of the kindness of God. I mean, they believe it, 
They believe, you know, they're not going to argue with you that God is kind. Now, they are going to be quick to, to insert Romans 11 that says, don't forget about the kindness and the severity of God. Right? You're right now probably thinking, don't forget to tell them about the severity of God, Grant. And I won't forget. I'm telling you, if you don't stop despising his kindness, you are going to know and meet the severity of God. The moralist thinks so little of the kindness of God. They think God's kindness is just this little, little small thing. This word kindness, it could also be translated goodness. It paints the picture of having a kind and a tender concern for someone, treating them gently, treating them well. You see, the moralist has such a low view of the kindness and goodness of God because they have such a high view of the goodness of themselves. Why would God's kindness and goodness need to be, need to be that great? I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not a Romans 1 person. And if I'm a pretty moral person, there doesn't have to be any sort of supernatural grace for God to be kind and good towards me. No, my salvation, it's just a logical conclusion. It just makes sense. The heathen deserves wrath. I deserve kindness. It makes sense. And when you think that way, you presume upon and despise. What does Paul say? The riches of his kindness. He uses the word riches because he's describing a kindness that is abundant. It's not stingy. It overflows. It's no small thing, God's kindness towards you. The moralist doesn't just despise his kindness. He despises the riches of his kindness and his goodness. But church, God has been abundantly kind and good to you. He made the sun come up this morning. And he's done that every day of your life and your parents' life. He didn't have to do that. How kind, how good God is. He's given you access to his word, which in church history, that's still a pretty recent and new kindness God has shown to his people. How kind he's been to you. He gave you eyes to be able to read these words on the page of your Bible this morning. How kind, how good he is to give you eyes. I had a handicapped sister, Marie. She did not have eyes. She lived 19 years with no eyes. Now listen, God was kind to her in a lot of other ways. I mean, the first thing she got to see was probably the face of Jesus, which that's pretty cool. But man, he's been specifically kind to you to give you eyes to let you see his word and his world. He's been kind to you. He brought you here this morning to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to not only save Romans 1 people, he came to save Romans 2 people as well. Amen. How kind he has been to save some of us from our self-righteousness and to save some of us from our moralism, to save some of us from being a church kid. I mean, think of all the ways that God has been kind and good to you. What in this life do you have that you did not receive from him? 
And not only has he been kind and good to you, but he's also been rich in his forbearance towards you. Look back at Romans 2, forbearance. Forbearance is God's amazing ability to put up with our shortcomings and weaknesses. When we play the moralist and the judge and pounce upon the sins of those around us, we show ourselves to be despising the forbearance of God. God is also patient with us, we see here. This means he literally has a long temper. He doesn't have a short fuse. It's a really, really long fuse. God is able to not lash out immediately towards people that provoke him day in and day out. He's been patient towards you. Oh, that we would know and come to taste and see the riches of his kindness, the riches of his forbearance and his patience towards us. These are not small things. I mean, you can't even demonstrate them towards fellow human beings. Our God, who is holy and infinite and perfect, demonstrates his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience towards sinful humanity every day. But you despise these things. You've mistaken his kindness as approval of your hard heart. And you have such a low view of these things because you don't realize that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance is a change of the thought or the will. Some have defined it most literally as a change of one's mind, which is, which is a fine definition, but it's, it's, it is that, but it's getting at more than that. It, repentance is more than just an intellectual decision, all right? It is that, but it's more than that. It's a change of the will. It's a change of the heart, and it results in a change of direction of one's life, right? Others have said that repentance is a change of affection that results in a change of direction, Right? It's a change of the affection of your life that results in a change of the direction of the life, which I think that is a helpful way to try to understand biblical repentance. Right, there, so when, when you repent, you're having a change of heart about Christ. Right, You no longer hate the fact that you need a Savior and Lord. You now start to love the fact that you have a Savior and a Lord. Right? That change of affection, it then results in a change of direction. No longer are you running from Christ, you're running to Christ. Repentance. Change of affection. Change of direction. You also change in regards to how your, your affection towards sin. Right? When someone experiences true repentance, they no longer love sin. They start to hate sin. They no longer run to sin. They're running away from sin. The believer might still sin, but they, they hate it. They struggle with it. They fight it. They confess it. They turn from it. They run from it. You see, the moralist knows nothing of true repentance because they are all about trying to change the direction of someone's life, but they have no idea how to change the affection of someone's life. <laughs> the moralist also tries to flip this verse around. All 
right? Look, look back at, at 2 verse 4. The moralist tries to flip the verse around. The truth of the word says, His kindness and goodness is meant to lead you to repentance. His kindness or goodness is meant to lead you to repentance, to a change of affection and direction. But this is the lie that the serpent whispers in the ear of the moralist. He says, no, no, no. Your goodness is meant to lead God to repentance. He says, your goodness is what leads God to have a change of affection for you. Now that is deceptively dark. And in your finite human reasoning, it probably makes more sense to some of you than what God's word actually says. His kindness and goodness are meant to lead you to have a change of affection and direction, not the other way around. You see, if it was your goodness that led God to have a change of affection towards you, then you would be so scared to spend any time with him, right? I mean, what if I said the wrong thing? What if I prayed the wrong way? What if I, I misinterpreted a passage of his word? What if I did this or that? What if, you know, oh man, I'd be so afraid, right? That you can't, this is why the moralist can't confess sin to him or to anyone else. They cannot concede the point that they have sin in their life because what if that changed the way God felt about me? And really at the end of the day, living as a moralist, you just can't be honest with God or anyone else. You can't do it. And so you don't spend time with him. You believe he's there, but he becomes kind of this unknowable, impersonal force out there. And sure, you might spend time reading his word so that you can still appear like you know some things in front of other people, all the while missing the point that all these words he's kindly given to you were meant to lead you to a relationship with him. They were meant to stir up in you a love for him. They were meant to overwhelm you with his kindness and goodness that would spill over onto everyone around you. These words were meant to be the oxygen mask of grace that would empower you to grab masks for others. But you've despised his kindness. You've thought it was just a small thing. And I was, I was asked recently about the relationship that I have with my dad and, and what it was that I thought uh, about how my parents raised us that led us to walking with the Lord and having a good relationship, uh, you know, into adulthood. And there's a lot of things I think my parents did right. I'm sure they would say there's a lot of things they maybe did wrong. But the main thing that really stands out to me hits on the truth of this passage today. And you see, my dad, he was not a pushover. Like when we were young, we had plenty of rules, right? We, he, he taught us right from wrong. We, we had some rules. But as we got older, as we got to be 10, 11, 12, 13, into teenage years, I don't remember there being a lot of rules, but I do remember as we got older, there were plenty of conversations. There was lots of time together. And I knew that I could always go to my dad with anything. Even on an awkward retreat where we talked about my changing body. Right? 
that's all right. Still, still working through some things. But I knew I could talk to him about anything, right? And I could confess anything to him. And that, yes, discipline might still come, but I wasn't going to be met with wrath and fury. I was going to first be met with kindness and grace. And so I took everything to my dad. From the first time I snuck into a movie I shouldn't have gone to see. From the time my friends and I stumbled upon inappropriate magazines that we shouldn't have looked at. To the frustrations as I grew older, to the frustrations I had with church people. All of it I took to my father. All of it I confessed to my father. And he didn't meet me with wrath like some pastors do to their kids. I mean, you guys know that a lot of pastors' kids are messed up, right? That's not like a secret. I think that's an obvious thing, right? He, He didn't meet me like a lot of pastors I've heard have met their pastor's kids. He didn't jump down my throat and say, don't you know I could lose my job if someone from church saw you doing that? A lot of pastor's kids have heard stuff like that. No, in that moment, when I felt the mo- so unworthy to be his son, in the moment when I felt like my goodness should not deserve his affection, you know what he would ask me? He would say, why do I love you? And it's what I say to my boys as well. He said, why do I love you? And I would say what he taught me and had shown me to say, even when I didn't believe it, I would say, you love me because I'm your son. That's right. I love you because you're my son. And I will always love you. Now let's pray about this. Let's confess it to God. Let's thank Christ for taking the punishment you deserve. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help you move forward. And then let's address if there still needs to be some discipline applied here as well. And you know what? I love spending time with my dad. And I still love spending time with my dad. And you know what happened as I spent more time with him? I started to love what he loved. You you can fool the rest of us here. Your kids know what you love. You realize that, right? Like, you can come play church here, but, but they know what you love. And by spending time with my dad, I started to love what he loved. I started to love basketball. I started to love family. I started to love the church. I started to love Jesus. One of the most impressionable times of my childhood was seeing my dad sitting in his chair, reading his Bible, and he was smiling. He was happy in Jesus. Some of you have never seen anyone happy in Jesus. He was happy in Jesus. And I started to love what he loved. The affections of my life changed. And because my affections changed, the direction of my life changed as well. You see what happened? His kindness led me to repentance. Because his kindness led me into a relationship with him. And I, and I know that not all of you had a dad like my dad. And I'm sorry, I, I would want that for you. But listen, I think you sort of do. You just don't always realize it. 
that that's the kind of God that Christ has made a way for you to have a relationship with. You see, the saddest thing about seeing the person described in these verses in Romans chapter 2, the saddest thing about seeing the person who judges everyone else but themselves, the person who despises the kindness of God and thinks of it as a small thing, the person that is not kind towards others, does not bear with others, is not patient with others, the saddest part is that's probably how they think God treats them. A Christless Christian only knows God as judge and never as father. Because if your life is without Christ, God as your judge is all that awaits you. No wonder you judge everybody else. You treat people oftentimes the way you think God treats you. You will never treat someone better than you think God treats you. Like your view of God is the bar right? If you think his kindness is low, I'm telling you, your kindness is going to be way under that. But if you've experienced the riches of his kindness, and if you go to him over and over and experience his, the abundant kindness and goodness of God, you will start to love what he loves and do what he does. The fruit of, a pe- of repentance will spring up in the soul who has breathed in the grace of God and allowed it to nourish every aspect of their life. And listen, if you are the person who is struggling for air to breathe, who is really working hard at this, but might not last much longer, take heart. God's word for you today. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Listen, church-going people, God has been kind to you. God has shown forbearance towards you. God has been patient towards you. But don't mistake his kindness as his approval of your hard heart. His kindness is meant to lead you to him. It's meant to lead you to have a new affection and direction in your life. I mean, if the person and work of Christ were removed from your life, would you even notice Or have you sunk into a deceptively dark darkness? The good news for you today is that God loves to save Romans 2 people. And this is me. I used to feel bad about not having a more exciting testimony. I thought that God's power was put on display in saving the Romans one person. Someone just, you know, living rebelliously against him. But the more and more I've just lived and and walked with Christ, the more I've seen that it took just as much grace and power for him to save a church kid like me as it did the people in Romans 1. And God loves 
to save the self-righteous from their self-righteousness. God loves to save the moralist from their morals. God loves to save the judgmental from the judging they do. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So run to him this morning, church. Let's pray.